welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. And we're going to be getting reading tonight in verse 10. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, how do you fight? By taking up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, believer, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, would you allow it to pierce our hearts, to reveal the sin within us, to lead us to repentance and the grace that is found in forgiveness of our sins, remission of our sins. Lord, we're so grateful for your word that it is alive and powerful, that it speaks regardless of the imperfect messenger delivering it. Pray for these students that you would open their hearts to receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For many years growing up, I shared a bunk bed with my older brother, Nate. Um, He was two years older than me. And we slept in the same room, obviously. And one night, um, I was like four years old. I remember this night kind of distinctly, well, distinctly for a reason. Because I made a comment to my brother about sneaking out outside. Like, at, I don't know, it was probably like nine o'clock at night. But it was really late for us as a four-year-old. Um, sneaking out outside. And my brother was like, well, you could do that. But what if someone takes you? And I was like, What? What do you mean, what if someone takes me? What? I, don't, I don't understand. And I remember in that moment, because that was like the first time that it ever struck me, that, that there actually was people in the world that wanted to do evil, wanted to do harm to me. And it was like a really scarring moment. I was like petrified. And then for years, I just did not want to see a window at night without a curtain over it. Anyone else was like, that was terrifying to me for years. All because of my brother. I don't blame him. Right, and I, I didn't have a defense against anyone who may be coming to get me, whatever that means. 
But I just wanted to be hidden behind this curtain because I felt safe behind this. And if you're just joining us here on Wednesday nights at Redeemer, uh, we're, we're speaking on the spiritual warfare. We're speaking more specifically on the armor of God, the armor that God provides believers, the defense that God provides believers, which is a real defense, unlike a curtain on a window, against a very real enemy, unlike a random person in the dark who might take me, right? This is a real battle. I hope you get that as we read the first verses in our passage. So we've been looking at the six different pieces of armor. Well, we've actually looked at the first five. We've looked at the belt of truth. We've looked at the breastplate of righteousness. We've looked at the shoes of the gospel, which they give us sure footing. They point us to urgency for the gospel. They point us to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has made a way that sinners could be reconciled to God. We look at the shield of faith, which we are to defend the flaming temptations and trials of Satan. And last week we studied the helmet of salvation, which guards our minds from the lies of the enemy, from the temptations that he provides us with, from the impure, improper, incorrect thoughts that he tempts us with, from the air that we tend to follow. But if you've listened to this list as we are equipped in our armor for battle, you would notice that there is one glaring exception. There's one omission. How are we supposed to go to battle without a weapon? Well, truth is, is we do have a weapon. Every single piece that we've listed and studied so far is designed for defense. But God, in his providence, has given us a sword. And it's important that we clarify what the sword is, and then we'll spend the rest of the time tonight diving into what it does. So let's read our specific verse again tonight, which is verse 17. It says this, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if you're taking notes, you can write the sword of the Spirit. And just as a heads up, anytime I say the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God, those are interchangeable. Okay? Sword of the Spirit, Word of God, interchangeable. So in our text, the sword, as identified, is the Word of God. But why doesn't the text just read this? And take up the sword, which is the Word of God. Why doesn't it read that way? It's because it's a specific sword, and it belongs to a specific person, the Spirit of God. This is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who equips us. He's the one who enables us to use this great weapon. He's the one who allows it to be effective in our hearts, in our lives. One of the problems that we have in approaching this weapon is that we are naturally unable and ineffective users of it. We don't know how to wield it. We don't know how to use it. We don't understand it. We think that with no help at all, we can just pick it up and Swing willy-nilly, and God is going to just do whatever we wave him to do, right? But the problem is, is that's, that's like worse than assuming that you can just walk up to Thor and say, let me borrow your hammer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really strike someone with this, Milnir, however you pronounce it, right? We would never do that. Then why do we approach the sword of the spirit of the word of God without respect, without reverence? Student, this right here is the sword of all swords. 
There is no weapon that is greater than this. There is no weapon that is stronger than this. There is no power contained within any weapon that has ever been devised that is stronger and more powerful than this word. But amazingly, as we get this picture of this super powerful sword that's like this giant two-handed cleaver that Aragorn just slices an orc in half with, that's, that's not what this passage is describing. And it's interesting because Paul, he had two different options in, in the Greek language for words describing a sword. One of them was a big sword, like I just talked about. And the other one describes something that looked a little bit more like this. This is more like a dagger. It's a very small knife. It's not very sharp. Please don't rush the stage because you might hurt yourself. It is sharp enough. This right here is the sword of the Spirit that Paul is describing. You see, this is not a weapon that a natural man can expect to use with any effectiveness. Apart from the Spirit of God working on your behalf, after all, it's his sword, not your sword, you will not be able to use this weapon with any effectiveness. But for all who believe in Christ, who put their trust in him, as their Lord, who submit their lives to Him in faith, you are given the ability to progressively master this tool and to do great damage for the kingdom of Christ. This dagger, the sword of the Spirit, is designed to be used in close range. It is not a six-foot-long sword where you can stand here and hit your enemy from all the way over here. This is hand-to-hand. This is mano y mano. This is close-range combat. When we are given this sword, it's designed to give us an image that our confrontation with evil, with the enemy, with the world, will be close. It will not be distant. You will not be in a bunker somewhere far away shooting a rocket at the enemy. Okay? That's not how it works. Right? God gives us a sword with which we are to pierce the enemy. In the hand... In hand-to-hand combat, this weapon is powerful and dangerous and deadly. I want you to know that. This Roman sword was designed to pierce through the ribcage and instantly kill its opponents. And that is what we are given. So we understand a little bit more about what the sword is. Now, what does it do? What does it do? I have three examples tonight. We have three uses of the sword of the Spirit. The first one is that it stabs the enemy. The sword of the Spirit stabs the enemy. So God in his wisdom has designated every believer to have exactly one offensive weapon, according to Ephesians 6. One weapon. He doesn't give you two. He doesn't give you three. He doesn't give you a contingency plan in case your sword is dull. He doesn't do that. And he designed it on purpose Because he understands that if we were to trust in something other than his living and active word, we'd be trusting in something much weaker. The word of God is your weapon, and it is sufficient for the battle. In your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at a story, well not a story, a true narrative of this sword in action. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was very hungry. And the tempter, Satan himself, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and he set him on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus again retaliates. He says to Satan, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And and Satan said to him, All these I will give you. I will give you the whole world if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then Satan left him. Jesus, the Son of God, is meeting the greatest foe in the entire universe, head to head, right here. That's what's going on in Matthew chapter 4. This is Rocky Balboa versus Ivan Drago, if any of you have ever even heard of the Rocky series. <laughs> this is, thank you. This is battle, battle for the ages, right? The two great opponents duking it out. Satan appears before Jesus, no doubt, with the cruelest, the most tempting, the most divisive temptations that he can offer Jesus in order to get him to sin. Jesus has gone 40 days without food in the desert. He's wearied in the flesh. He's hungry. I would be very hungry if I hadn't eaten for 40 days. Let's look at the the three different stabs that Jesus deals Satan. Satan says, if you have so much power, if you're so great, make yourself food so you're not hungry. And Jesus takes the sword of the Spirit, stab right in the enemy. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus responds with God's word. He quotes scripture. He stabs Satan right between the ribs with the sword of the Spirit. Immediately after Satan, understanding the strength of the word of God, he's no fool. Satan knows the power of the word of God. He tries to use it himself. Do you see that in verse Six, Satan misquotes scripture to try and tempt Jesus with. He tries to manipulate God's word so that Jesus would believe in his temptation. And Jesus yet again responds with scripture. Because he is filled with the spirit, he's properly able to wield the sword. Boom, another stab right in the enemy's gut. Finally, a third time, Satan offers a promise of all earthly glory to Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you everything, the whole kingdom, it's all yours. All you have to do is just worship me. Just say, I'm Lord. Jesus goes for the kill shot and he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then he's gone. Satan leaves. So what do we learn? What do we learn from this encounter? What, what do we see in this battle of Jesus versus Satan, of the great champion versus the great foe? We learn that the best defense is a good offense. I'm not talking about football here. 
Jesus defends himself with an offensive weapon, the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. When the temptation comes to him, and student, when the temptation comes to you, you must go to the word of God to fight it. Do not be deceived to think that sitting there and receiving blow after blow from Satan is going to do you well. No, you must fight back and you are given a great tool to fight in the word of God. You must pierce the the tempter whenever he comes after you. We also learn that the word of God in this encounter is our only defense against Satan, against temptation. And it is a good one. It is a very good one. Charles Spurgeon once described the sword of the Spirit this way. He says this. I love this. The devil himself cannot invent a temptation which is not met in these pages. And all the devils in hell together, if they were to come together and hold a council and to call in the aid of all bad men, they could not invent a device which is not met by this matchless library of truth. This is, this is God's word. For you, this is a lie. This is powerful. Notice that Jesus does not try to outthink, outreason, or outwit Satan's temptations. Maybe some of you noticed that Satan's third temptation, that Jesus would receive the whole world, doesn't even make any sense. Jesus is already the heir of all things. He owns all things. He's the creator of all things. Colossians 1.16 says that, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and by him. Jesus owns it all. And yet Satan still tempts him with that. Do you notice that? That he still says, well, I'll give it to you, even though you already own it. Satan, that doesn't even make any sense. How can you offer Jesus what he already possesses? That's stupid. No wonder Jesus didn't fall for that one. Right? But... How often is temptation ever logical? How often does it actually make sense, sense for you to sin? Never. It, it never makes logical sense for us to sin. And yet we do it and we sin and we sin and we sin and again and again and again. Oftentimes it's in the same ways over and over. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Not sinning is not a matter of whether you know the truth or not. The truth helps. The truth is how we fight sin. But just because you know it doesn't mean you don't sin. You know the truth and I know the truth. But I want you to hear this warning. If your defense against sin is logic, you will be crushed. It can't withstand that. It can't withstand that force. Logic is not a sufficient defense. The word of God is our only defense. It's a good one. It is a good one. What else do we learn? We learn that the use of the word of God against temptation is specific. Notice how every temptation Jesus comes back with a very specific verse. When Jesus is hungry, does he just quote John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Does he go to Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, that Scripture is alive and powerful. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. It's valuable, but Jesus comes back with a specific verse, a specific attack. He goes to Deuteronomy 8.3, which says that we are fed by God, not fed by the world. We are not fed by the things of this world. 
He uses a specific and targeted truth to defend against this specific attack by Satan. It's very wise to memorize portions of Scripture. And I commend you students that do this. I think it's amazing when I hear memorization. Please do it more. Something that I'm growing in as well. Because we have to be armed against this battle. It's great to memorize portions of Scripture. But know that if you struggle in specific ways with specific sins... Study those scriptures, memorize those scriptures, put those scriptures in your heart over and over and over and over again. So that when the tempter comes with that one particularly enticing sin to you, you have something to fight back with. That is what the word of God is designed to do. That's what Jesus does in this passage. He goes right back with a very specific verse. Some more I'd love to share on this. Perhaps we can in the coming weeks, but we should move on. The sword of the Spirit stabs the enemy, number one. And number two, it pierces our hearts. It pierces our hearts. The Word of God is not just designed to be used on external enemies. It's not just designed to be used on Satan, on the world. But it's also designed to be used on the internal enemy. That is your flesh. When I say flesh, I don't mean the meaty part of your body. I don't mean anything to do with the human body at all, but it's the way that the Bible describes the, the sin nature that we're all born with and that even once we're saved as believers, still lingers with us all the way from salvation to glory when we're home with the Lord and He gives us a new body. But we still fight the flesh. When you place your trust in Jesus and you submit your life to Him, when you receive the gift of salvation by faith alone and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. God literally gives you a heart transplant. He goes in, He cuts open your heart cavity, He rips out the dead stony heart that you had, throws it away, and He puts in a living, beating, pumping heart that desires the things that He desires. This is always growing and it's always being sharpened and honed by the Word of God, which is why we must study it. But it is a process that God begins in all believers and he will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. We're thankful for that. The thing is, is that this is not a clean or a tidy or a painless process. It hurts. It's painful. But God in his love for his children will go through great lengths to cut off their dependency from sinful things. Because he loves his children so much, he will carve out whatever he needs to in order for them to be made whole and pure and to be joined with him forever. The sword of the spirit is not to battle against flesh and blood, but against the spirit, the spiritual realm. Hebrews 4.12 describes this, this word, this sword. Maybe some of you know this passage. For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing to the division of of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This dagger, this weapon goes so deep that it divides the soul and the spirit. It divides bones and joints. It pierces thoughts. It even pierces the intentions of your heart. When no one else in the entire world has any idea what's going on in your heart, when no one else in the entire world has any idea what sinful intentions you have in your mind, this word pierces. It pierces the heart. And God designed it that way, to be an instrument that that he would 
Help us by piercing us with his word. Perhaps some of you have been in this environment. You've been living in this in secret sin for years. Maybe you've, you, you just don't feel any escape. You have no idea how you could get out. You feel trapped. The word of God pierces the heart. Some of you in this predicament may even be believers. And the next verse in Hebrews 4.13 says this. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows. God knows. He knows everything. He sees everything. And this is bad news because there's no covering. There's no hiding our sin from a holy God. But it's also good news because he understands That when he went to the cross and offers you the gift of salvation, some of you even now in this moment, he did it with his eyes wide open. He knew your sin. He knew how badly you would sin and that you would sin in the same ways over and over and over again. And and yet he still, in his love, offered his son to die on your behalf. Perhaps as I'm proclaiming God's word to you now, maybe some of you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you feel trapped. Perhaps your conscience is is trying to calm these feelings of anxiousness with logic, saying that what you did really wasn't that bad, that that this habit that you have, you're done with, or you're you're moving on, or it's the sin isn't greater than you, or whatever this person isn't doing is worse than what I'm doing, so I'm all right. Don't do that. The word of God is sufficient. And that piercing, painful feeling is not condemnation if it's led to the cross. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. You can flip there if you want. You don't have to. This describes the situation. Peter, right after denying Christ as his Lord, preaches a sermon to the Jews who literally just killed Jesus. Peter, in this passage, starting in verse 14, explains two separate, very distinct times that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. He does not shy away from their condemnation, from their guilt. There is no accident in him saying this. He knows that he must identify their guilt, and he knows that the way to do this is by using the Word of God. In this passage, we won't read through it tonight, but you can read through it on your own. Peter quotes many Old Testament passages and and proves to these Jews that Jesus was the Son of God and that you killed them, that they were responsible. And if you look down at verse 37, this is the situation that is describing perhaps what some of you are feeling even tonight. It says this, Now when the Jews heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this guilt? What do we do with this pain that we feel? They understand that they have sinned against God. They they understand that they have sinned in a way that seems irreparable. And Peter responds not by denying their sin, but by offering them the solution. He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus offered, Peter offers them the solution, which is found in Jesus, contained within the pages of this word. If you've not trusted in Christ in your life, 
And you understand that you're a sinner. We all are. Every one of us. We've all sinned against a holy God. Do not go to the weak and to the flimsy defenses that the world offers you. Because they will not they will not suffice. They will not last. If they make you feel a little bit better for right now, for the next 30 minutes until you can hang out with your friends. But then when you're up at night wondering if God really cares about you, if you have a defense against God, if where you'll go when you die. The, the defenses of this world will maybe pacify your conscience for a little bit, but they will not deal with the root of the issue. You must go to the word of God and be cut by it. And do not be deceived. It will be painful. And believer, it will be painful for you, too, to be cut by the word of God. It will hurt. When our sinfulness is confronted with the perfect word of God and it severs the old nature of sin from the new nature of righteousness, there is great pain associated with it. Hear me when I say that. In April of 2019, my wife was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's a type of blood cancer. And immediately what followed her diagnosis was two and a half years of very rigorous chemotherapy. And this was hard on her body. She lost her strength. She lost her hair. And her body was crushed by this medicine by the medicine of chemotherapy. And the idea of chemotherapy doesn't seem to make sense. The doctor gives you a medicine that is literally designed to kill you. But just not all of you. Because when you have a cancer and your body is not functioning right, without interruption, it would spiral out of control to your death. So the doctor must go to great lengths to save you. Student, your sin is more serious than cancer. Do you get that? And without the intervention of God's word that cuts you and hurts, it does. You stand no chance. You need to be given a righteousness that you cannot produce in yourself. It must come through Jesus. Some of you... It might take everything in your life that has to be stripped away before you stop relying on the things of this world and start trusting in Jesus. And if that is the case, amen. That is a great resolution because one day you will be with the Lord and all of this will be gone. And there will be no suffering, no pain, and he will wipe every tear from your eye. And you will be with the Lord and he will be your God and you will be his people. And we have a great inheritance to look forward to. When we are cut by the word of God. Because when it comes, God is bringing it in a loving hand. And student, when it comes, receive it. Know that the cutting that God is doing with his word is means to an end. It's going somewhere. Leads really quickly on my last point. I'll go fast with this one, I promise. The sword of the spirit stabs the enemy. It pierces our hearts. And it binds God's people. It binds God's people. When God performs surgery on a believer, when he cuts the dead and the rotten flesh away, he does so for a very glorious reason. Spurgeon once said that people will not receive the balm of the gospel unless they have first been wounded by 
unless they know something of the wounds that sin has made. And when a gardener prunes a bush and he cuts the dead branches away so that the plant can grow richer and healthier and fuller. And this is the purpose of God's cutting of our hearts. If you feel the knife of the word of God piercing your heart, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to the one who has borne your wounds in himself, who has been pierced for your sins, who has been crushed on your behalf. Sing with the old hymn, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Let that be your prayer. His wounds are those that heal. Proverbs says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. How much more faithful are the wounds of the God who controls everything. Who loves his people more than anything in this world. Who will not let anything separate them from himself. Nothing will separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ. Do you see it? Do you trust that the pain in your life is not meaningless? The pruning of your heart is not purposeless. God's word binds his people. And in it we find the sweetest relief, the truest relief, the only relief. Right here in the word of God. Because our greatest foe has been vanquished forever, Satan has been dealt a death blow. Take heart, believer, and trust in the one who has overcome your sin. Let's pray.